Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. This is an episode of D.C. Public Library Presents. Hello, I'm your host, Victor, Interim Manager for the Labs at the D.C. Public Library. Our guest is Fanny Julissa Garcia. Fanny is an oral historian contributing work to Central American Studies. In Fanny's recent work, Reminiscence on Migration, a Central American Lyric, she intertwines her own migration story using lyric poetry and vignettes with oral history interviews conducted with Central American refugee women who had been released from detention centers at the U.S.-Mexico border. We will talk to Fanny about this work later on in the show. Um, Fanny is also a social justice advocate and has over 15 years of experience combating the public health and social economic impact of HIV-AIDS on low-income communities. Fanny works closely with organizations fighting for the end of family detention and supports survivors of sexual violence. Fanny is a communications coordinator for Groundswell, Oral History for Social Change, a network of oral historians, activists, cultural workers, community organizers, and documentary artists that use oral history to further movement building and transformative social change. Fanny, who is on the phone with us, lives in New York City and works in the New York Historical Society. Um, is a co-founder for Social Change Institute, a media and education company using multimedia tools to produce work promoting social justice and equity. Fanny is on the editorial board for the Oral History Association's Oral History Review. Fanny, welcome to the show. Hi, Victor. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you, Fanny. Um, Fanny, I, um, I wanted to start out with how um, we connected and your connection with, with the library. Um, but I think it was back in October um, mm-hmm. when you gave a workshop through the DC Oral History Collaborative. Um, is, that, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah, do you... I visited DC and met you, um, and we did a two and a half hour workshop on the ethical risks and dangers in oral history interviews with um, people that have irregular documentation status or for other reasons, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you remember the the library where we had it? Um, it w- was it in Petworth? That's right. Yeah, it was a Petworth yeah. library where we met. Um, it yeah. was a, a good group of, of, I think, community members, um, library staff, um, people from the Oral History Collaborative who were there. Um, but yeah, um, the library, um, part of its work is doing oral histories around D.C. with D.C. Mm-hmm. people and in D.C. communities, which is how we partnered up with the D.C. Oral History Collaborative. Um, but what yeah. was your impression of, of the people who are here doing oral histories? 
I was really impressed by the diversity of subjects that uh, the students were interested in documenting. Um, there was a woman there from a, who was from out of town and documenting um, hunger and starvation in Bangladesh. I think she was a visiting scholar, and she happened to find out about the workshop and attended. And I also remember hearing from... I believe her name was Brenda, but she was documenting black uh, oral histories uh, for her church. Mm, and that's so right. just, yeah, the, the subject and interest were wide and expansive, and I was really heartened to hear about everyone's projects. Yeah, no, there was a lot of diversity in what, in what people were doing, but also in how they came into doing this sort of work. Exactly, yes. Um, yeah, so um, Fanny, let, let's back up a little bit. I wanted to ask you about yourself. Um, can you tell us where are you from? Yes, I was born in Honduras, in San Pedro Sula, and I immigrated to uh, Mexico first before coming to the U.S., actually. <laughs> and I immigrated with my mom, and the story is that my mom left me in the care of my great aunt the first time she journeyed to the U.S. and then returned to get me. And uh, in that second return, we ended up in Chiapas, Mexico, mm. and we lived there for about five years before uh, my mom decided to immigrate again to the U.S., this time with me in tow. And um, our, if our story is really interesting. We were, I, I remember Mexico really fondly. I love, in fact, I just went back to Mexico <laughs> in September and it felt like I was home because I had the, uh, these uh, childhood memories of yeah. my time there. You said, how and, long uh, were you there in Mexico, Todo? I was only there for five years, between okay. five years old to nine years old or yeah. ten years old, yeah. And um, But we were forced to move further north because I got really sick with bronchitis and mm. asthma. And my mom decided, to, the doctors told my mom that she needed to take me to the U.S. to get better treatment. And so we decided to immigrate again, and uh, we were undocumented, and we mm. crossed the border, just like many people are doing right. so right now. Um, it was a different time, much easier, if you can, you know, quote, categorize it as easy. Um, but um, we, and I settled in California with my mom in Los Angeles. Okay. And you've been living, you live in New York City at the moment. Yes, I live in New York City now in uh, West Harlem, and I came out here for uh, a, a master's program. So education brought me to New York, but yeah. I'm and a you, West Coast. You did person. that. <laughs> you did your master's at the Columbia University. Exactly. Yes. That's great. Um, well, funny. Um, in your bio, you, you um, we say you intertwined your own migration story using lyric poetry and vignettes with interviews from oral histories that you conducted with Central American refugee women um, mm -hmm. who had been released from these detention centers. Um, how did you find yourself doing this work? Um, how did it all come together? Um, just tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, my So in 2016, I 
uh, a month before I started my program at Columbia in New York City, my soon-to-be professor and director of the Oral History Master's program at Columbia, her name is Amy Staricheski, she connected me with three women, mm-hmm. one attorney, one professor at Barnard College, and a former policewoman, who were all traveling to um, Dilly, Texas, just an hour outside of San Antonio, to work for free at a detention center, to volunteer at a detention center um, for a week, for seven days, providing uh, assistance to women who were being detained there with accessing legal services and Mm -hmm. translation services. And so I met them uh, at the car rental place. We had exchanged a couple of emails. I met them at the car rental place. We had all coordinated. And we worked for seven days at this detention center. And so then when I came, when I finally landed in New York, I, they, they lived here. And so we reconnected. Um, but that experience of working at a detention center. Yeah. Can you (laughs) briefly describe what? A, de- a detention center looks like what it's yeah. like in there um yeah it's I mean, a prison uh, it's a prison for women it's a prison for children mm. um it was a um a, a, a time that i will never forget and um i learned a lot and i heard a lot of stories Mm-hmm. from the women because we basically our work was to prep them for the asylum interview that they were going to have with an, with an asylum officer. Okay. And so the and this stories is in were their step hard to, to in when they in preparing to see an asylum officer that's in preparation to get like legal refugee status in the US or to Exactly. Okay. It's called the, the first step it, um for the to meet with an asylum officer for what's called a credible fear interview. Okay. Where the asylum officer interviews them and gauges whether their fear is credible, if it's believable, if it's um, surmountable or insurmountable or so heavy and harsh that, yes, they deserve asylum. Or no, they, your fear or your experience does not merit asylum and so we had to prep the women for that process for that face-to-face interview with an asylum officer Um, and most of the women were we interviewed were from Central America many of them were from Honduras um, and um, many others from El Salvador we also interviewed People who were immigrating from Venezuela, from Brazil. Um, what were some so of the? Well, what, America. Yeah. What were some of the things that these women were telling you? Well, um, one story that I still think about today is one woman from Honduras, from the coast, the Caribbean coast of Honduras, from an area called Tela. Um, I've heard, I don't remember her name, but she talked to me about all the different steps that she took before she decided to immigrate to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like, immigrating to the U.S. was not her first choice. She, When she first became aware of the threat against her children, she had three or four children, two of them daughters, 
who were being targeted by um, the Maras or the gangs that had kind of taken control of the colonia or the mm. neighborhood where she lived. Yeah, like back and, home. Um, so she told me about that threat and that fear that if she didn't get her children out, they were going to succumb to and be kidnapped or taken by the Maras to do their bidding or to commit crime. And so she told me about how first she sent her children to live with her uh, sister in a town far away. The second thing that she did was that she left the town and went to live with her sisters. Um, the third thing she did was to go to another country, uh, an adjacent country. And even there, that the people that were threatening her in Honduras had known about her different activities to move around or leave or to escape, basically. Yeah. And so she talks about these, you know, she said, the last thing I wanted to leave is Honduras, my home, the place where I have family and friends. Um, what was also interesting about this woman's story is that she had a business also that was targeted by the Maras. Mm. Um, and so she was at, approached first and told, you have to pay this tax, this impuesto de guerra. And for everything that you make in your business, you have to pay. And if you don't pay, then we're going to come after your family. That was yeah. the biggest threat. And when that came, she decided to flee to the U.S. with her children. And so, so what really impacted me was that this was a woman who was self-reliant, running a business, caring for her family, doing thing, everything she could to save their lives and protect them against danger, which any person would do. Uh, for their loved ones. And, you know, the last choice was to come to the U.S. And right. so it's, it just kind of, it contrasted with a lot of the messaging that people have when they hear that someone has immigrated. Like, why didn't you go somewhere else? Or why didn't you um, go to another country? Well, this woman did. You yeah. know, this woman did all of those things. And many of the women do do all of those um, different options, yeah. or they weigh the different options, but then the final one is to get as far away as possible, right. and that's to the U.S. So, Vani, you're collecting all these stories as part of your work to become an oral historian. Um, why did you choose to become an oral historian? I chose to become an oral historian and, and specifically to, to focus on Central American stories and lives because it's a subject that is not often heard of or read, and if we do hear about it, it's through media reports, journalistic reports, who in in their defense try to um, frame these stories as urgent, but they neglect to sometimes also focus on the agency that um, Central American women now and in the past have taken to protect their legacy and mm -hmm. your family is your legacy when you grow up poor, right? right? When you don't have very much, your family is what you protect against all costs. And so I wanted to document these stories and to ask questions that I feel sometimes are not asked about um, the choices people take and why, and also not just that, but also to to see 
migrants as full people, mm-hmm. as multi-dimensional, complex people um, that leave behind homes, that have backstories. Um, and a, for a lot of the interviews, I didn't start with, tell me where you're from, but I would ask things like, um, tell me about uh, a memory of a ch- uh, in your childhood, or tell me about the dwelling spaces, your home. What did your home look like yeah. in Centro America, in Honduras? Or um, one of my favorite questions to ask is, talk to me about a favorite food that you ate in your country and that you probably will miss in the U.S. because, you know, it's hard to get the right queso or the right um, <laughs> masa to make the food that you made in your country. And so I think it's important to tell these um, uh, complex and multidimensional stories of people that we op- that often get reduced to a headline yeah. right now. Um, how would you say that an oral historian is different from a regular historian? Well, a oral historians focus on people's lives. We ask in-depth questions about who they are, and their memory or relationship or the meaning that they make out of a historical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, a historian may tap into oral histories, but what they're looking at is perhaps documentation, research. Um, and I think oral historians really focus on people's lives and their e- either eyewitness accounts of a, an event or their memories of an event. If they didn't see something, for example, um, how did a certain, for example, the children of families who experienced war in El Salvador, you know, perhaps we may get the oral histories of people that experienced the civil war in El Salvador, but the children can speak to mm-hmm. how this war impacted their their parent or their family um, and how it's impacting generations even though the children may not have had um, a night witness account of the war that happened in, in, in Salvador. Yeah. So Fanny, I was curious to ask you about this relationship that you kind of get into when you do an oral history um, mm-hmm. with the people that you're interviewing, whose who stories that you're sharing. Um, what sort of responsibilities as an oral historian do you have um, towards um, these people that you are interviewing? Yeah, um, I felt a tremendous sense of responsibility to make sure that um, the process of consent, informed consent with my narrators, for example, was really transparent and and that we did it together because mm-hmm. Um, the women that I interviewed had pending asylum cases. And when I started my, my project um, with Central American women who had been in detention, it was right after. Um, I started it before the 2016 election, and then I continued past that. And after the 2016 election, the, the fear was sky high about whether telling their story was a safe thing to do because of the threats and um, then after the Muslim ban 
past. It was more that people felt targeted or people felt like their stories could be used against them. And especially if you have a pending asylum case, um, many of my narrators asked their lawyers, can I participate in this? And even the lawyers advised, yes, you can participate, but you should do it anonymously. Tell your story because there can be power in that. And it, um, But just know that even if you're applying for an asylum, if you're applying for an asylum case um, or claiming asylum, that in that process, you're still undocumented and you're still at risk of being targeted or being deported. And so I felt like a tremendous sense of responsibility to make sure that my informed consent process was transparent and uh that it involved a lot of communication and listening right. as well to their fears and concerns. And also this consent is really like a relationship that you have with the person because their consent through by political reasons can change later. Um, so um, is that correct? Or, um, it's something that it, yes. you have to sustain more long term. Yes. Um, I think... I think one of the biggest fears was right now you may be safe, but you don't know how laws are going to change right. five, ten years from now, 15 years from now. And I think um, we're experiencing this moment right now in our government and um, where we can see the effects of how one change can impact generations. The recent appointment, for example, of um, Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. someone who could have a far-reaching impact on people's lives. Um, so, so I think it, the immediate concern, the concern shouldn't just be the now, but it's also looking to the future. How could this impact you? How could you Telling your story now impacts your case later, whether you become naturalized or not. Right. And how, how does all this affect your work as an oral historian when you have um, people that you have to protect, who have to remain anonymous? How then do you tell their story? Yeah, I am. Um, so in my project, I created an exhibit and I as part of that exhibit I created a small catalog and what I did was that I used the women's stories for this exhibit and this catalog and my thesis project as well and but I didn't use names and I did I redacted any information that could be linked for example to a person's city or colonia or neighborhood in the country that they were from and I just used anecdotes taken from the interviews that they that I conducted with them. Mm -hmm. So it was a way, and in the consent form, I also allowed them to review the consent form and left a space in the consent form where they could jot down, I want to participate in this project, but this is the only way that I could participate, okay. be it anonymously using a pseudonym or choosing which part of their story they wanted to tell. Um, so giving them a lot of options in which that they could participate because I think, I think it's important to, 
to be able to tell your story, mm-hmm. um, there's power in that. Um, one narrator in particular was very interested in telling her story as a way to take control back of her her agency and her life because she felt like as an asylee, so many things were up were in the control of the government, you yeah. know. Um, and so telling her story was her way of like, this is what I have right now. I don't have anything else. It's my story that I have. And so she was very keen on sharing her story, but she wanted to tell it on her own terms. And I think there's, there's a, a power in that and that we, I think that's the difference sometimes between an oral historian and say a journalist who wants to tell a particular story, right. uh, an oral historian focuses on what part of the narrative that person wants to tell and um, how it contributes to the collective memory as yeah. a whole of yeah. a, a, a community. So funny, I was looking at some of your work and you speak a lot about like artistry and just art in oral histories. Um, I think part of you found yourself in a challenging kind of situation where you have to protect people you're interviewing people you're you're connecting with and mm-hmm. and then it gets you to a point where it really forces you to rethink of your project and how to share the this these stories um so much of oral histories are like i think maybe to me performance art but how do they how then do we access them how do we make sure that um we, people can listen and, and use them as a primary source document Um, using how do you do that using art and um, things in the art world right Um, I want to first say that um, this sense of responsibility that I have to my narrators was largely in part because my narrators taught me they made me ask these questions about protecting their identity Mm -hmm. um And I'll give you an example of how they did that. For uh, I, I created a consent form, and on the first interview that I did with one of my narrators, I shared it with her, and she took a quick, she took a look at it and told me, email it to me so that I can have a longer look at it. Yeah. And I emailed it to her, and then she made changes to the consent form, and. I had never thought about that. I did. I did not. I had not thought about. We talk a lot about oral history as a co-authored, as something that has co-authorship between the narrator and the interviewer, or right. the oral historian. But it, we think about it only happening in the interview, probably, mm-hmm. or in the questions that are asked, or in that dialogic exchange. We don't think about it in terms of the consent form, and I think it's 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 something to consider and that my narrators taught me. So it's, it's not that I like thought about this, you know, I think human beings, you know, are pretty selfish. And so we only think about, you know, Oh, here's your consent form. But we don't (laughs) think about like how that consent form is fits with that person or doesn't. And so, um, I didn't, um, think about this until my narrators taught me. So that's like a part of the dialogic exchange that should also be considered and explored when talking and working with individuals whose stories, um, um, who carry a risk 
or dangers, right? Ethical risk and dangers. I think number one and, and uh-huh. something I remember you said at the workshop was I think your project starts at, at when you reach an agreement with you and your narrator. Once the exactly. consent process is um, understood, right. Yeah, I remember watching, and I mentioned that because I had just watched a beautiful film called um, And the Rest I Make Up, which documented the life of a playwright by the name of Maria Irene Fornes, Mm -hmm. a Cuban playwright, um, not known, um, but, but, but really talented, won many OBs, influenced many playwrights, um, and artists. And a documentary was recently produced of her life, and it was of um, taken from photographs and interviews. And the director, in an interview, talked about how um, Maria Maria Irene Fornes was experiencing dementia and Alzheimer's. And so the director talked about how she interviewed her, but she that she stopped recording when Maria Irene Fornes was no longer a participant in the conversations that she was recording, when she could no longer consent or be aware of what was happening to her, that's when she stopped recording. Mm. And I thought it was a very poignant thing to mention because I I think, again, it, it, the Oral History Project is a participatory event between narrator and oral historian and should be the conversation should happen just like that. Like once that person says, I don't want to be part of this, it's, it's okay. Um, and so, so again, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it's something that I hold really strongly and talk about with my colleagues a lot about how do we make this more, even more inclusive right. um, and respectful of a person's yeah. narrative and story and, and what they want to share. Yeah. Um, Funny, out of curiosity, um, how would you say that oral histories are like or unlike more traditional like storytelling? Um, I don't know if I have a clear answer. I think um, <laughs> I'm I'm a curious person. I want to know some uh, about a person. I often ask people of all backgrounds, where are they from? Not because I'm targeting but because I'm truly curious about the trajectory of a person's life Mm -hmm. Um, and I think with the project that I conducted um, I realized that my interest was subjective that I was talking to the women because I had had a similar experience at a different time that my mom brought me to the US to essentially save my life or give me a better life mm-hmm. and that the women coming now and who were have been coming to the u.s or not just women men also coming to the u.s to work and labor um we're trying to save or i don't know if save is the right word but give a community and a people a fighting chance at survival right you know um there are towns in Honduras and Central America that no longer have the population that they have because everyone has migrated. Right. You know, so this country is experiencing 
a change in population and in demographic. And um, and so if I if my mom had not brought me to the U.S., I don't know where I would be right now. I often think about that. And so there is a sense of responsibility in documenting these lives. But I often think about how many of the women who are coming, bringing their young daughters because they're being targeted by with femicide or or other sorts of violence, that they're essentially um, cre- uh, saving the next generation of Central Americans. And we should value that, and we should value and see that as worthy. Yeah. So one of the things that has come up here in D.C. with the D.C. Oral History Collaborative is... Um, Think the collaborative has been in this phase of collecting stories, and along with the library, um, we've been going through this phase of collecting local histories um, in different sorts of communities. Um, and I think the collaborative is starting to think of well, what's the next step? Like, how do we share these stories? Um, uh, is there yeah. ways to display them? Is there ways to um, have users and um, like our lib- library patrons come and access them? How do you do that? with oral histories right um traditionally oral history uh in the u.s has been conducted by universities who got funding to interview people of note people who were either academics or governmental figures and the goal was to archive them in the university and the academia and have them there for other researchers to access. But I feel like this in our time is restrictive because I thought about how if I, I archived the stories that I collected, would my narrator be able to go to Columbia University and say, hi, my story is here. Can yeah, I yeah. take it out? Can I take a look at it? Chances are that she'd have to go through a huge process that would take a really long time that would probably discourage someone from continuing to access, right? And so I think about accessibility. Really, the question is that how do people who are being reflected in the oral histories um, have access to these stories mm-hmm. um, that does not involve a lot of bureaucratic red tape yeah. or um, academic elitist um, access. And so I, um, and so there are many ways the field of public history has been growing recently because people have been asking that question, how to pair oral histories with exhibits, mm-hmm. um, literary oral history, which is interviewing people and um, writing literature about it. Books like The Warmth of Other Suns come to mind, Mm. uh, which is about the great migration and that black experience in the U.S. Um, So, um, and even, and and yes, my story, my project looks at that possibility because I want my mom to be able to read this, to be able to view it in her language. My mom only speaks Spanish. Um, and, and that's another question too, uh, language accessibility, how accessible are we making this to the people that are interviewed? And so there are many projects online now, websites that have sprung up, documentaries, the, um, 
Virginia Espino is an oral historian who greatly influenced me, and she partnered up with a director to create a film called No Mas De Vez, which is about Latinx uh, or women of color being involuntarily sterilized in mm-hmm. uh, pu- general hospitals or public hospitals um, in Los Angeles, but also um, she's been discovering stories across the U.S. Um, and so it's about making it accessible and to use them to shed light, to educate on a part of history that has been ignored mm-hmm. or relegated to the margins. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think earlier you were saying how these oral histories can be, have the power to save. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, that's why it's therefore more important to be able to listen to them um, especially if you have a community where that can identify and see themselves in these oral histories so that they can then take action. Because these are issues that migration, immigration, it's something that's happening now that we mm-hmm. hear about on the news. Um, finally, if someone mm-hmm. was interested in writing, um, in collecting an oral history, um, what would you tell them? How, how, how would they go about it? I think... Um it's important to know the history of oral history um, and to know that it, collecting an oral history doesn't have to be sanctioned by an institution, okay. by you know, a museum or a university, that you can conduct oral history. There is a method and a process in which to do it that you should know about. And so I would... I would encourage people to access the two places that I know that has have information are it's sad but um, largely oral history based like um, Columbia the Columbia oral history program has a page with information on how to conduct oral history um, UCLA which is where I went to undergrad has a page that I often go to because it has resources mm-hmm. the UCLA Center for Oral History um, but also Groundswell Oral History for Social Change. We're in the process of creating information, either um, workshops. Um, we have an upcoming workshop on the introduction to oral history, which kind of gives you a basic framework of what oral history is yeah. and where it started and how to conduct interviews. Um, that people can access and learn, and it doesn't have to be expensive. Um, yes, there's a master's program, but you don't have to have a master's to conduct oral history. But yes, you should educate yourself on the correct way and be aware of the responsibilities and ethical practice and the theory behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, say, well, if you're here in D.C., you can also look up the D.C. Oral History Collaborative, which we use yes. a lot of the groundswell materials, and it's how you came um, to teach that workshop that we spoke about earlier. Um, but yeah, say, yes, I, say the if you... The Oral History Collaborative is a huge resource, very important resource that also provides funding to people. Uh, if you apply mm, for one right. of their grants, you can receive funding, which is huge because... Yeah, the, an oral history is not just an interview. It's also the transcription, the um, 
learning how to archive, learning how to keep track of all the interviews that you collect, and they provide uh, lots of information. And libraries, too, are a <laughs> yeah. great wealth of resource. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, where can um, our listeners learn more about your work and, and Groundswell, or how can they follow you on, on social media? Yeah, my Twitter handle is um, at SJG Writer, W R Y T E R, SJG W R Y T E R. And um, I'm on there fairly quickly. I retweet people. Um, the hashtag oral history or hashtag oral history now can also provide resources. And um, the website for Groundswell is uh, oralhistoryforsocialchange.org. Yeah. Um, and, and there are yeah, also I'm, oral history now on Twitter, right? Oral history now is our hashtag, Groundswell hashtag. Yeah, okay. that, and you can access information there about the upcoming workshop that we're going to be teaching. It's an online workshop, so you don't have to travel anywhere. You can take the class from the comfort of your own home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny, we're about at the end of our show. Um, Before we close, is there anything else you want to tell us or talk, say about oral histories? Yeah, I, um, it's my passion um, and I want to make it more accessible to a wider range of people um, who can document stories that aren't often heard about. So if you have a project and you want to talk about it, uh, Groundswell is a perfect network to do that. And uh, you can do it uh, at no cost whatsoever and um, also learn and, um, and reach out to other oral history practitioners. I think it's important to troubleshoot questions and challenges that we Mm -hmm. have in this practice too. So I think it's important to access and have a community. Yeah. Well, Fani, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really fun. Thank you, Victor, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk to you you soon. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Bye. Um, so this was an episode of DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasted live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Visit the library at dclibrary.org. Listen and su- subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.